Guys, the world needs a sacred space. And that sacred space needs to be the family of God. A place where the Spirit of God is manifest and present. A place where the Spirit of God is at work saving souls and healing people and transforming lives and renewing families. The world needs that kind of place and it has to be the family of God. And as we work our way through the last two chapters of the book of Hebrews, remember that what has happened now is that the reader has, or excuse me, the writer has turned his attention onto the reader and begins to place into our laps. Here's now how we ought to live. Because of all of these things that we've talked about, and especially in chapter 11, talking about faith, we come to chapter 12, and now this is how we are supposed to live and how important it is for us to live this way and to endure in living this way as we follow Jesus Christ. And you'll remember coming off of chapter 11, the beginning of chapter 12, we have a lot of really good examples of faithful endurance, people who have faithfully and and, and truthfully followed Jesus Christ and his call through their lives, even through difficult situations. We have these incredible examples of courage, of creative redemption, of faith showing up in places where we wouldn't expect it, of miracles that are performed, and of faithfulness to the very end. And as a result, the writer says in the first two verses of chapter 12, let's then get rid of everything that gets between me and my relationship with Jesus Christ, whatever it is that blocks that, that hinders that, that distracts me from that relationship, Let's pay attention to those things and let's begin to get rid of them. And he said, let's cast aside the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. It's impossible to run a race if your legs are tied up in knots. And that's what sin does to us with the race that God has given us. We said, let's pay attention to that. Let's get rid of those things. and Let's run this race. And so by the time we get to this point, verse 3 of chapter 12, it's really important for the writer that you and I hear a couple of things. And one of these things might even be a little bit surprising to us. And as I begin to read it, if you haven't read ahead or if you don't know this passage of Scripture, you're going to think, I am really sorry I came to church this morning. No, it's going to be awesome. I promise you it's going to be great. At least some of these things are going to be a little surprising to us. But here's what we're going to pay attention to today in our passage of Scripture. The first is this. The Lord will discipline us. And he does this because we are his children. It's a deliberate image and relationship that is drawn in this passage of Scripture. The relationship from our perfect heavenly Father to his children. Part of that relationship is discipline. We learn that God does this for our good. And in fact, we learn that in that context, all that God does for us is perfectly good, even when it's disciplined. So what does it mean for the Lord to discipline us? Does it bother us to think about that, to endure that, even believe that that might even be possible? If God disciplines his children, what is he after? What's the goal? What is he trying to do inside of our lives? And once we answer that question, can we decide that it's actually worth it? God's goal in discipline in my life, is it worth it? Can I see that? So the Lord disciplines us. What does that mean? 
And then we'll see this, that the best context for this kind of work is the community of faith. Guys, there's a lot going on in the lives of God's congregation. Every time we gather together, every time any faithful congregation gathers together, there's just a lot going on in the lives of God's people. And are we together through our corporate meetings, through our friendships, our fellowship, our small groups, our classes, are we ready to be the right kind of strength and encouragement to each other, no matter what that season of life is like? So here we hit this note again. It's not just a matter of endurance. It's a matter of we together learn to endure. And this becomes that kind of sacred space that the world around us desperately needs where God himself is at work in the lives of his people. Well, let's begin reading in Hebrews chapter 12. And in verse 3, the passage of Scripture goes like this. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? And the word there in the Greek is as children. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. And everybody's smiling and happy and so thankful for this passage of Scripture, right? But here's where we begin with this thought. Consider him, it's Jesus. Consider him who endured such things, such suffering from the hands of sinners, who endured the cross and everything that came with it. Endured the cross so that you and I might be in relationship with him. Everything that the cross meant, think about it. It's a, it's a beautiful image. Consider him. And, and that word means to place your mind on something, to meditate about it, to spend time with it. It's like grabbing something beautiful and precious in your hands and turning it over and over and over so you get a 360-degree view of what this thing is. We take Jesus, we put him before our eyes, and we learn who he is, and we turn the Gospels around, and we read them, and we listen to the epistles. How does the life of Jesus now apply to us? And we think about who he is. Put him before your eyes, he says. And in this context, it is, there's a specific context. Consider him who endured such things, who endured the cross, who was unjustly, the only innocent human being to ever walk the face of the planet, was executed. Consider him who endured such things, right? Jesus, in fact, told his disciples, I need you to understand that this, com- this is coming. And I need you to understand what this means for you folks as you Follow me. We go to the Gospel of Matthew, and in Matthew chapter 16, in verse 21, it goes like this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day rise again. Now, it takes the disciples a little while for the and rise again to sink in. <laughs> Because the rest of it is so stunning to them. He, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one who's supposed to save the people of God from the oppressors who are all around them. And you're telling me you have to go to Jerusalem and suffer from these people and be killed. 
Consider him who endured such things. And then the writer of Hebrews says, now as we think about Jesus and all that he endured, I need you to keep in mind that you guys, though you have suffered much, in their context, they have not yet shed blood for the cause of Christ. Other Christians in other cities had by this point in time, but they hadn't. They'd endured much. They'd had their property taken away from them, we've read. They've been sent to prison and separated from their families, as we're going to read in chapter 13. You've endured this, but you haven't yet endured to the point of shedding blood. But the point is this. You and I, as followers of this Jesus Christ, we are preparing to lay down comfort in the system of this world for identification with Jesus Christ. We're preparing to do this. Whatever it means in your context and my context, in their context, because we follow this Jesus and all that he endured, we're preparing to let, let go of comfort in the system of this world for identification with Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus says something very much like that. Just a couple of verses after this. That was Matthew 16, 21. In Matthew 16, 24 and 25, it goes like this. When Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For the sake of Christ, we are learning that we are laying down our lives and we're allowing God to do with us what he wants to do with us. And if the systems of this world make that decision difficult for us, you and I are intended to identify with Christ instead of the systems of this world. The way this world wants us to be Christians, the way the world wants us to hold to or not hold to our faith, we, we deny ourselves and we let that go. And instead, we pick up Christ. And he says, when you learn how to do that, you might lose every system of this world, but you're going to gain your soul, your life. So because of this pattern, right, Jesus endured, and you and I are preparing to endure. The follower of Jesus Christ learns to build a very particular view, a point of view, on things like difficulty and suffering in life. And even in this passage of Scripture that we're reading today, a very particular view on what we might even call the discipline of the Lord. And so the text says, now have you forgotten the exhortation, the thing that we are told to pay attention to in Scripture? My son, do not regard lightly, right? Pay attention to as of, as of greatest importance. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be wary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. We are talked to in this passage and in the rest of the passage as children. And this is not a condescending passage of Scripture. This is a Scripture about this family relationship that exists between God and those whom he has made his children, right? And because we are his children, there is this relationship of discipline and guidance that follows from him. So we see very clearly in this passage, our perfect heavenly Father just disciplines His children. This passage of Scripture that's quoted from the Old Testament comes from the book of Proverbs. It's Proverbs 3, verses 11 and 12. And I think it's important that it comes from the book of Proverbs because of this. Proverbs is an entire book devoted to what we call wisdom. There's a chunk of literature in the Old Testament called the wisdom literature. Now, what, what are we talking about when we talk about wisdom literature? 
Wisdom is different than knowledge, just knowing things about the world and about God and about how things work. That's necessary in our walk with Jesus Christ, but wisdom is the living out of that knowledge. One person put it this way, wisdom is knowing the sacred order and living according to that sacred order. So it's about life. It's about decisions we make. It's about the way we respond to and interact with God. So when the Lord's discipline comes, wisdom tells us, that's okay, because he loves his children. And take it seriously. Don't treat it lightly. Don't ignore it, but pay attention to it when it happens. And it's not just here. It's not just Proverbs. There's a lot of this in Scripture. We go to another book in the Old Testament that's wisdom literature, and it's the book of Job. And one of the things that Job is told early on in this book, in Job 5, 17, it says this. Listen to this. Behold, blessed is the one whom God proves. Therefore, despise not the discipline of the Almighty. You're blessed because God is paying attention, and he's paying attention in love when there is discipline. The book of Psalms as well, Psalm 94 says this, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law to give him rest in the day of trouble until a pit is dug for the wicked. Wickedness is the digging of a pit, and the wicked will end up in the pit. But those who are disciplined and trained and guided by the law of God find themselves relieved from the consequences of wickedness. To give him rest in his day of trouble until the pit is dug for the wicked. And then I like this. For the Lord will not forsake his people. He will not abandon his heritage. This is part of the Lord's involvement in our lives. Discipline is how God is actually intensifying his relationship between you and himself, even drawing you closer to him. So guys, we see this in Scripture. When there is discipline in our lives, and it's part of God's plan, it's actually a signal of the good work that God is doing. When God's discipline is in our lives, it's a signal of the good work God is doing. Now, this blows our fuses for a couple of reasons. We've got this thing inside of our sin nature that says, I would rather be God. This is the original sin. Satan says, you know, you know, Adam and Eve take this fruit, and they want to be the ones who know the difference between good and evil. It's the original sin to take God's place and be him instead of God. So who is this God who says he actually has the authority and power to reach in my life and discipline me? And then our culture is structured against this in some powerful ways that we'll talk about later. But this blows our fuses, so we have to pay attention to it. Now, one little detail here that's important for us. The word discipline in this passage of Scripture, the Greek term that is used, it is a word that has this broad array of meaning that's used in all kinds of contexts, for the education of children. So this concept of discipline has this broad application. So it speaks of guidance and training and instruction and education. And it also speaks to what we think of in the English as discipline. Something's gone wrong, now we have to correct it. So it means that, yes, but it also has this broad array of meaning of the education of the children of God. All right? Let's keep on reading. Let's hear how the writer sort of fleshes this one out in chapter 12, verse 7. 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children, not sons. You're not treated as loved children. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits, the Father of all, and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But as he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's the clearest, most obvious thing that's been said in this passage of Scripture so far, right? I don't like this. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What is God after? What is God after in our souls when we speak of the Lord's discipline? That first phrase there, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Another translation in the English, the Christian Standard Bible, puts it like this. Endure suffering as a discipline. There are things for us to learn when we walk through those kinds of seasons of life. Whether it's suffering or difficulty in general, or it's the actual active hand of God disciplining us and training us, Scripture says treat that as a discipline and walk through it with your eyes on Jesus Christ, and you're going to learn things there that you won't learn anywhere else. You see, our natural tendency in those kinds of moments is to shy away, is to, is to close up, is to even begin to get angry at and deny God. But Scripture is telling us, there are things to learn about God, especially in those kinds of seasons of life. Endure it as a discipline. I love the way the paraphrase, the message takes that phrase. He says, God is educating you. Don't ever give up. God is educating you. Don't ever give up. So the text tells us that God is treating us as his beloved children when we endure through discipline. And difficulty. He is treating us as his beloved children when we are being guided by even difficult circumstances. When we are being disciplined by our Heavenly Father, it's love and it's good. And this analogy that is drawn, it's, it's a wonderful analogy in this passage of Scripture. The writer begins to talk about, well, let's think about our earthly parents. And the image here is of good earthly parents and of wise earthly parents. So the analogy is drawn that our earthly parents discipline us for our good. And the author assumes that we've grown up and we've learned from that. And we look back on our lives and think it was very good that my parents did this. They taught me. They trained me. They disciplined me when I did things that were inappropriate and wrong and even sinful. I grow up. I mature. And I think it was good that that happened. He says that's natural for us to think that way. But even when our parents are, are good and they are wise, they have us for a little while. And through our lives, that relationship changes and morphs and doesn't ever really go away. But still, our parents have us for a little while. They do the best that they can, but they are, in the end, temporary and imperfect parents. As good and as wise as a parent can be, still temporary and imperfect parents. Now, think about it like this for a moment. 
a child does not always understand the purpose of the discipline. A child may rarely understand the purpose for the discipline or its intended goal. But do children need to understand everything about that discipline in order for that discipline to be right and good? They don't. Now, the goal is at some point they will learn and they'll figure it out and they will then in turn be that to their children as well. But in the beginning, in the beginning of that training, in that discipline, it doesn't feel good. They don't like it. But there's training going on. So, guys, when God disciplines us, do I have to understand everything that's going on in order for that discipline to be right and good? I don't. But hopefully as my eyes are open and I learn, I'm actually going to figure out what God is after, what he's doing, what his goals are inside of my life and soul. So the initial value of that discipline is in the intention, in the character of that parent, and then eventually, right, we hope that the child sees, right? How many, have, how many times have you heard this or spoken these words? I'm doing this for your good, Right? I know you don't think that. <laughs> I know you don't see that. But that's okay. You don't have to right now. So even when wise and good parents do this well here, you see the analogy is our Heavenly Father does it, and He's perfect. And He is perfectly good. And so every time He does it, it is best for me. He is our eternal Father. His character is perfectly wise and good. And His goals are the right and the best goals in my life. Then the result of this discipline, that we may share in his holiness, it doesn't feel good for a little while, but it's going to yield the peaceable fruit of righteousness for everyone who has been trained by this. Now, we're going to unpack that a little bit because the text itself unpacks that little thought. But every now and then, guys, there's just an idea in Scripture that is intended to just be laid in your lap so that it just strikes a chord in you, and your response is, I want that. I may not know exactly what that means, but I want that. I know I'm not there. And so whatever God wants to do inside of my life, here's what I want. I want to participate in the holiness of God. I want that so badly because I know what the brokenness of my sin does, and I'm sick of participating in that. How many of you, when you hear this phrase, the peaceable fruit of righteousness, something inside of you goes, I need that. Now, don't raise your hands, but how many of you want your spouse's life to be identified by the peaceable fruit of righteousness? How many of you want your kids' lives to be identified with the peaceable fruit of righteousness? How many of you kids wish that your parents' lives were identified with the peaceable fruit of righteousness? You see, it's the kind of thing that is intended by the Holy Spirit to just draw us in. I don't really have it. I don't really have a handle on it. Oh, God, I need this. My relationships need this. My spiritual family needs this. This is part of the goal of what God is doing. So we begin to see, guys, that the result of living within the guardrails that God sets for us is a thriving in Christ-like life. 
God disciplines us because he's putting these guardrails in our lives. Outside of here, you're going to find death and destruction. Outside of here, you're going to find dysfunction and brokenness. But when you understand and know what my will is, God says, the kinds of guidelines that I place upon your life, even the discipline I bring into your life, inside of those guardrails, there's thriving. There's the direction that leads us to the Christ-like life. Guys, deciding to live outside of those kinds of guardrails, the will of God, the, the things that God teaches us about life, deciding to live outside of those guidelines is inevitable. Corruption and destruction, the corruption and destruction of personal autonomy. It is inevitable when we live outside of these things that God gives us for our lives. This is how this struck me this week as I was thinking about this. Guys, the the idea of a God who can discipline us is at odds with how our culture sees the good life right now. Because I'm telling you, and Scripture is telling us, that there is a sovereign, all-knowing, and all-powerful God whom I cannot change, who has both the right and the power to discipline this guy. And that just rubs us the wrong way. And it rubs our culture the wrong way. Because we're being told that the good life is exactly the opposite of that. We're being taught in our world today, and this is just one of the characteristics of the culture that we live in right now. We're being taught our culture is autonomous and hedonistic. I want you to keep those two words in mind for a second. Autonomous and hedonistic. Every now and then you have to put up with philosophy professor Phil, right? Autonomous and hedonistic. What do I mean by autonomous? We see ourselves as the most important unit in the universe. I am in charge of me. What is most important about me is me <laughs> and what I think and what I think I ought to do and should be able to do. And there is nobody in this universe who has the authority to tell me what to do. The autonomy that is in our culture right now teaches me that I am the most important unit in the universe, and we prefer autonomy over accountability. And we're hedonistic. If you take philosophy 101, you should learn the term hedonistic. Here's what hedonistic means. It means that we believe that our feelings and our pleasures are our greatest good. What's the highest moral standard inside of my life? Being able to express myself. Being able to do what I think is best for me. Being able to express everything I feel or think about myself. We're autonomous and we are hedonistic. And if that is true, guys, if those are some of the highest values in our culture, then the greatest moral evil is an outside authority telling us our feelings and desires are wrong. Have you ever wondered why those who claim to be the most tolerant among us are the most intolerant among us? Because this is how autonomy and hedonism works. If those are our greatest values. The greatest sin is telling someone that your feelings and desires need to change in order for you to become a better person. And here we have God stepping in and saying, you know what, guys? Don't take it lightly. Don't ignore it. Because out of love, the sovereign Lord steps into your life and he offers discipline and guidance and direction. 
we think. It's very easy for us to think that our personal autonomy is the same thing as freedom and thriving and doing well, but that story is crumbling around us everywhere. In unexpected ways, it just keeps falling apart, and yet we keep pursuing autonomy and our hedonism, and it just keeps falling apart. Here's what we're being taught as followers of Jesus Christ, guys. Freedom from the God who designed us and loves us is just inevitable destruction. Obedience to him and obedience to his guidance is freedom to thrive. It is the way into Christ-likeness. And so we pay attention to the ways in which our perfectly good and loving Heavenly Father speaks into our lives. As I was thinking this through this week, I thought, well, you know, let's talk a little bit about how does God's discipline actually come? It's, you know, it's great to say, ah, pay attention to God's discipline and let's not take it lightly. That's good stuff, right? How does it happen? How does it come to us? How do we recognize it when the discipline of God shows up? Well, I want to give you a few ways in which this happens. And the first is very straightforward. The discipline, the guidance, the education of God is just going to come through the Word of God. We are people of the book. We're intended to know this thing, to learn this thing, to spend a lot of time working through it and learning the stories of the Old Testament and listening to the prophets speak and praying with the psalmist and watching Jesus in Palestine in the Gospels and listening to Paul and John and Peter and James tell us, well, here's what the life of Jesus means for us. We're intended to learn these things so it becomes a part of who we are and we hear and know what the will of God is. This is God's clearest expression of his will to us, that we know the word of God. Here's something that an aging apostle Paul wrote to a young pastor by the name of Timothy. In 2 Timothy 3, he says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction. There's that discipline and guidance language again for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for the training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work, partaking in the holiness of God and yielding the peaceable fruit of righteousness. The Word of God is good for this. How well do we know the Word of God? How often are we in this thing, spending time with this thing, talking about this thing with fellow followers of Jesus Christ? So the discipline and guidance of God comes to His Word. And it comes through also, guys, the preaching and the hearing of the Word. God has designed things so that we should be reminded of the Word of God together, right? This is how God has designed things. Not so that we might close ourselves into our own personal cubicles and figure out what we think the Word of God means, but so that the Holy Spirit can be at work when the Word is read and preached and heard. Guys, this is a spiritual activity. This is not just something that I get to do from time to time. This is something that the Holy Spirit speaks through. One of my favorite moments in the Old Testament comes in the middle of the book of Nehemiah. And it's Nehemiah chapter 8. Ezra and Nehemiah are busy leading the people of God, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the city of Jerusalem, and rebuilding the culture. And as that process is happening, there's this moment in Nehemiah chapter 8 where Ezra the scribe, Nehemiah is the builder and warrior, and Ezra is the scribe and the priest. He gathers the people of God in the temple courts. And they gather together, and he opens up the word of God, and he begins to read it. And here's what Nehemiah 8.8 8 says. 
They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. We are supposed to read the word of God out loud when we are together. We're supposed to spend time trying to understand what the word of God means. Now, part of what's cool about Nehemiah 8 and Nehemiah 9 is that when they do this, it results in corporate worship. And it says, and the people of God fell to their knees and they worshiped their God. And in the next chapter, it leads to mass confession of sin and repentance and the rebuilding of obedience to God. You see, just the reading of God's word with open ears, with open lives, leads to worship and confession and the renewal of God's people. So sometimes... God's discipline and guidance to Christians is going to come through these kinds of moments, through the preaching and the hearing of the Word of God. It also comes through our spiritual family. This is a necessary context for our growth in Jesus Christ, is that we do it with each other. Psalm chapter 27, verse 4 says this. David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. He says, If I need anything, this is what I want that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. This is where the presence of God is, he says. This is where the people of God gather to worship. This is where the priests of the Lord offer sacrifices and sing songs to God every day, and this is where I want to be, so that I be in the presence of God and of his people, so that I can gaze upon the beauty of God. Isn't that... A magnificent image. If we could carry that with us when we gather together, I want to show up so that I can gaze into the beauty of God and that I may inquire of the Lord, ask my questions, hear his word, learn from him. So the discipline, the guidance, the correction of the Lord will often come through the activity of our spiritual family. Then, guys, there's just God's design for the natural consequences of Sin. Sin just has its consequences. I recently heard Robbie Zacharias put it this way, and I'm paraphrasing him because it's impossible to quote Robbie Zacharias, right? But he's magnificent. I heard him say this recently. He said, God gives us the freedom to choose obedience or disobedience. We are free to choose obedience or disobedience. We are not free to disentangle the consequences from those decisions. So we can choose obedience, and there are consequences to obedience. Partake in the holiness of God and bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness. We can also choose disobedience, but we're not allowed to disconnect our disobedience from the consequences of that disobedience. There are just natural consequences to that, and you and I can't stop it. So God has built that into the system. We're given this opportunity to follow God, to listen to him, to pay attention to his discipline. And if we do, then there are consequences, good consequences to that. So God's designed these natural consequences. And then, friends, there just are times when God is actively at work to guide and correct his children. Psalm 119, verse 75 says this, I know, Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's hard to say. But notice what the psalmist puts together. I know your ways are right. I know your law is right. And I also know that you've afflicted me, but you've done it for my good. 
You are faithful to me, and that's why I've gone through what I've gone through. So God disciplines his children because he loves his children. And then God's goal in discipline partake in his holiness to bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Guys, in the end, what God is after is my soul, the renewal of this soul, the changing of this soul from the shape that sin puts it in to the shape of Christ-likeness. This is what God is after inside of my soul. It's a value to God. Is it a value to me? Is this what I want? Is this what I am ready to pursue? Is this what I am ready to allow happen to me as God is at work in my life? Do I consider it worth the cost? It's a value to God. And we read in the rest of Scripture that it's a value to the apostles and the disciples and the leaders in the church of Jesus Christ. The apostle Paul actually says in Galatians chapter 4, I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. <laughs> I love that. He's writing to a cantankerous church. He's writing to a bunch of imperfect Christians. And he says, I am toiling and I am working, and it feels like the pain of childbirth, but what am I after? I need your praise and accolades, and if you could please make me more famous, would you do that? Share me on Instagram. No, it's not what Paul says. Because what I'm after is what God is after. I want you to look more and more like Jesus Christ. That's where freedom is. That's where thriving is. That's where the good life finds itself. It's the more that you and I look like Jesus Christ. God values it. Paul values it. The New Testament values it. And the writer of Hebrews essentially tells us in our next passage, we value it. This is something we pay attention to with each other. So listen to what he says in this next passage. Therefore, verse 12 that's one of those moments, right, where because of all of that, here's what's important. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, where he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Therefore now, Again, turning his attention to us. Here's now what our lives need to look like. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Make these straight paths so that what is weak and broken may not be hurt anymore, but may be healed. What a beautiful picture of a healthy local church, of a healthy set of small groups, of healthy Christian relationships, that in a place like this there can actually be healing. There can be transformation. What was broken can actually be put back together again. Are we ready to be that for each other? It's very easy for us. 
when someone near to us walks through a difficult season of life, to grow a little bit uneasy with that. To maybe even sort of turn a little bit of a blind eye or take a step back because it's complicated, it's hard, we don't know what to do, but we're being told by the writer of Hebrews, let's not do that. Let's endure with each other. Even if it's complicated and difficult, this is a place of healing. Because this is a place where the Spirit of God is at work within His children. Lift up and strengthen and make straight. What can we do together to make God's way, the Jesus way, clear for the church of Jesus Christ? We're not here to cloud God's truths We're not here to pick the truths that we want to talk about and ignore the ones that we don't. We're not here to lay a bunch of needless legalisms on each other, and this is the only way that you can be saved. We point the way to the throne of grace. Do you remember that image earlier in Hebrews chapter 4? That we may approach the throne of grace so that we can find mercy and grace to help in time of need. Let's make that path as straight as we possibly can can. Strive for peace. If there is a countercultural personal goal inside of this list, here it is. <laughs> we value peace. Not at the expense of truth, but we value peace. That Christ can be at work inside of relationships and lives. The way the Apostle Paul puts it is as long as it depends upon you, as long as you are able, make peace, find peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, right? Followers of Jesus Christ value this and seek it in each other. Don't allow a root of bitterness to grow deep inside of your soul and bear the kind of fruit that only bitterness can possibly bear. Now think about this for a second. The original readers of Hebrews, we keep learning, they're suffering all kinds of things because they're followers of Jesus Christ. And if the original readers are suffering under the weight of an evil culture that doesn't like the fact that they have become followers of Jesus Christ, and if they are learning to see the discipline of God for their good, then they have reasons to grow bitter. It doesn't feel good. I don't like it. The world makes it hard on me. We have clear reasons with human eyes to grow bitter. So the writer says, don't let that happen. Bitterness is an ugly thing. That root grows deep, and it spreads into other things. If you're bitter about one thing, you're going to find out that bitterness becomes part of your normal vocabulary. It begins to infect absolutely everything that you do. And when it grows up and when bitterness flowers and starts to come out of you, it is a noxious weed. Every spring, I have these glorious yellow flowers that come up in my yard, right? The dandelions. They're yellow, and they're happy, and they're looking at the sun. And then what happens to dandelions when they cease being yellow? They turn into three trillion dandelion seeds, right? Be careful about bitterness because it bears bad fruit, and it affects everyone else around you. I've said this a few times, and I like it, so I'm going to keep on saying it. Bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die, right? It's destroying me, and it's eventually going to harm those around me. Don't allow bitterness to grow up inside you, even if you think you have reason for it. See to it that no one is sexually immoral. 
God's plan for our human sexuality is right and good and beautiful and full of love. And we are literally designed for the way God put us together physically, emotionally, and sexually. And sexual immorality breaks all of that. Again, our autonomy and our hedonism says, I'm going to be happier the freer I am sexually. That's a path to inevitable destruction. See to it. If that's not who you are, there's a better way through life. And the church needs to be clear about stuff like that. And don't be like Esau. Don't be like Esau. He sold his entire future for a single bowl of stew. What he means is, don't throw away your relationship with Jesus Christ for a single moment of cultural appropriation. For a single moment in which the world is going to say, you know what, now I like you. Now that you've given up on Jesus Christ. Guys, it happened again. It's happened two weeks in a row. I'm all a Twitter to see who denies their faith in Jesus Christ on Instagram this next week. It happened earlier this week. Another Christian celebrity writes and sings a lot of Christian songs, many of which you've probably heard on the radio over and over again. Goes on Instagram and says, I'm sick of it. I'm done. I'm so much happier now that I'm not a Christian. When folks do this, They sell their eternity for a single moment of the culture saying, I like you, buddy. Don't be like Esau. When you read the Esau story, it's in Genesis chapter 25. It actually says that when he did this, Esau despised his birthright. Don't despise what God has given you, even if pressures around you want to do that. So as we think about this, we take stock of the range of outcomes that the writer of Hebrews wants us to pay attention to, lifting up those who hurt, providing healing where we are broken, leading each other into the grace of God, getting rid of bitterness and finding God's design for us in marriage and family and sexuality and a clear teaching of the word of God and enduring to the end. The writer says, this is now how we do this. God's discipline, his education, his guidance is at work. What God is after is our souls. So here's what we pay attention to is the body of Christ. Guys, God's work in me, even his discipline, it's good. It's an example of his love and his guidance inside of my life. And I need to learn how to be ready for that and to accept it and to learn from it. And God's work among us, may it always (laughs) bear the peaceable fruit of righteousness between us. Let's pray.